beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be a hard sermon, so grab your socks and hose and pull. It's universal for us as humans to feel guilt. Feeling guilty is something that we're all familiar with. We don't have to be a Christian and have the law of God and conviction by the Holy Spirit to know guilt. Every, every human being knows guilt. Also common to every human being, I think, is a good feeling, maybe of satisfaction or pride, in a, in a job well done, in something that's done right, in something that, uh, even a good action, something taken on that we can say, that was good, and I, 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 can, uh, I can feel good about doing that because it was the right thing to do. Those feelings, I think, are common to all humans. Guilt for what we should not have done, but also a sense of, of pride or righteousness in some degree, not for God, but in some degree for things that we have done that are correct. If we want to kind of pull that together, we can say that is the work of conscience. Okay, the, the conscience is something that God's given us, and we'll discuss in, in a moment, maybe a close, tighter definition, but that either convicts us and shows us our own guilt, or it shows us that we've done something right, and that, that, we, that this was a good thing to do, and, and then the feelings in this, in, that go along with that also come into view. I want you to think, and I was going to... Uh, Think of a, I thought of a literary character that would be good, but it's too much. Think of a person who has done a crime, who's sinned against God, and their conscience won't let them go. They can't get rid of it. They can't get rid of the guilt and the recollection of the thing that they have done. Their conscience is in relentless pursuit, and it's driving the person to terrible insanities of guilt, from confusion to be driving one out of one's mind because of the guilt of the thing that you've done. You can't let go of it. You can't figure out how to get it out of your mind. We go the other direction and think of a right and proper thing that's been done where you say, this is good. This, that was a good deed. That was a good thing for him to do uh, or for me to do. And the feelings that go along with that. And kind of capture a little bit of the range of conscience. The conscience is complex. And there's a whole range of things that it does. Uh, from condemning us, even to excusing us and justifying us in, in our own minds as we're thinking about our own, our own actions. So behold the glimpse of the range and complexity, if we think about that, of the, of the conscience. Now the word conscience by itself, as we'll define here and, and move at it, the, the Greek word behind conscience that we see both here in our text in, in, first, or in Romans chapter 14, but also in the New Testament, uh, particularly in the pastoral epistles, interestingly. You think First and Second Timothy and Titus have a lot to say about conscience. But conscience, the Greek word just means with knowledge. With knowledge. And the, the Latin word, as we get our English from conscience, is just the same, right? It's a very similar word. With knowledge. Con. Scientia, or, or science, the word we get science from means knowledge in Latin, right? So con is with, with knowledge. So it's like you're coming up um, in your mind, in your, uh, in your consciousness of your own works, of your own life, and you're comparing it with knowledge. Is this right or wrong? What I've done, is it, is it correct or not correct? Is it righteous or wicked? And we're, we're assessing. So it's not just a matter of the conscience. It's not just a matter of review, kind of looking back at things that we've done. We must do that. Uh, and it's not mere introspection, just kind of looking at ourselves, which is death, when it comes down to it, but rather an assessment of that, an adjudication of our actions or our thoughts or our words in the past. Right, so the conscience is how we look at our own 
actions in the past, and how we think about that, how we judge them. If it was, was that right? Was that wrong? In what ways was it right and wrong? Is it praiseworthy or is it blameworthy? Is it something to be rejoiced in or is it something to be condemned? Our own actions. Right? We're, we're very used to rendering those sorts of judgments for other people and their actions. <laughs> that's praiseworthy. That's can, you know, worthy of condemnation. But the conscience is toward ourselves. Our own actions, right? It's focused toward ourselves, but it's with knowledge. That means it has to be informed, right? That, uh, our conscience has to understand what is right and wrong in order to adjudicate our own actions, right or wrong. So it's not like you might think um, a dog. This is, this is something that humans have. This is something I think that's the Imago Dei, you created in the image of God. Uh, you might think of your dogs that you have, and you, know, you come home and... The food's eaten, or the dog got up on the counter and ate something, and you go, bad dog, bad dog, what'd you do, who did this? And you do all that, and the dog looks sad, you know, and all the sort of stuff that dogs do. Well, that's not conscience. That's not the same thing. Right? Your dog's been trained by you uh, to say, well, this stuff's wrong, or when I take this tone with you, you know, you're supposed to look this way, all sheepish and whatnot. Okay, that's just kind of this social learned expectations. And we have those too. Humans have plenty of those. We operate in those as well. But that's not the same thing as conscience. Conscience is this faculty we have given by God where we can review our own actions, words, thoughts, and we can judge them whether they were right or wrong. And we can praise the things that are right, and we condemn the things that are wrong in ourselves. Okay, that's this faculty that we have given by God. Self-reflexive and reckoning with judgment. So turn to Romans chapter 2, flip back to chapter 2, and we'll see Paul give what I think is a very straightforward uh, articulation of conscience, especially with regard to pagans, right? Not even with, with regard to Christians. So really just the 14th and 15th verses of chapter 2. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, you know, thinking back here, we're comparing Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews have been given the law, and they think a great deal of it, and so on. Uh, but the Gentiles haven't been given that law. They didn't have Moses. They didn't have the lawgiver. That's what's going on here. Okay. Let me find my spot again. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts, that's interesting, that's an important, conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. Okay, and on the day, and he looks at the future judgment. So we have here, and it's important, the conscience functions, God's given it as a law on the heart. Okay, every human being made in the image of God has the law of God written on the heart. Which is to say, we know we're supposed to serve God. We know we're supposed to serve the one true living God. We know all this. We know we're supposed to serve Him in righteousness. Yet we're fallen sinners. Our minds, as we'll see later, are corrupted and so on. Uh, so we don't do that. But nonetheless, this is worked into the heart. And see, Paul says, even the Gentiles, they do what's right. They, this is the right thing to do and don't do the wrong thing. They're showing that there's, that's written on their heart. It's in there, right? That's, that's part of the conscience. So the law of God feeds the conscience. Okay, they're connected. I hope you see that right here in the text, right? It's the law of God, the, the commandments written on the heart that are the conscience. 
And so therefore, what do you think the major work of the conscience is going to be? Based upon the law of God. Well, the law of God convicts. Right? The law of God shows us a standard that we often don't meet. Right? And so the conscience is going to have that same kind of function. Showing us where we haven't met, where we come up short, what we haven't done correctly, how we haven't obeyed God. It's going to be the major focus of the conscience, although sometimes we find that we have served God. We, we are in the right. You find that in the Psalms, where the psalmist came and stand up before God and said, I'm righteous in this one. I've done the right thing. Before you have done the right thing and, and justify me or, or vindicate me in, in this. And I think the conscience does that as well. Just not as often. <laughs> I think the major function of the, of the conscience is to condemn because it's tied in with the law of God. And that's the function of the law of God, is to show us that we're unrighteous. One of the functions, and to, to drive us to Christ. To drive us to the one who is righteous on our behalf. So, so much for the introduction to conscience. Just trying to think through conscience, which is so readily uh, proffered here in our text in, in Romans chapter 14. The scriptures give us the blessing, and point us toward the blessing of a good conscience. A clean Conscience. That's something not only on an individual level that appoints us to, it certainly does that, but even in the, the vast history of redemption, by which I mean starting with Adam and then all of the developments of God's redemption through the years and the opening of the covenants and all that, finally ending and coming to this fruition and apex in Jesus Christ, the new covenant, the opening up of the new covenant by the death of the testator, right? opening up that covenant for us, and a clean conscience is right in the middle right in the middle of what Christ has done to give us a good conscience, to cleanse our conscience from dead works, and so on. So more of that as we go. This, we're going to take a few roads to get to the end here. The first road is this. What are, thinking of conscience, where we just talked about this moral capacity of, of self-examination and judgment and all that, what does it take? What has to be in place for something like that even to make sense? What has to be in place for conscience to make sense? In other words, what are the necessary preconditions for conscience? What has to be there for this thing to work and make sense at all? Does it strike you as peculiar, this moral sense, this moral consciousness in each of us? I mean, we take it for granted, right? It's one of these things that we just go through day to day and don't think much about. But stop and think about it. Every human being is made in the image of God and has a consciousness of morality, of right and wrong, and where they stand in that. Does that seem odd or peculiar to you? Well, not if we're made in the image of God. If God has made humanity, male and female, in his image, and he's certainly moral and righteous God, that we would have a sense of morality and righteousness as well. That he give us this conscience. And it flows out of creation uh, by the triune God of Scripture. We are in the image of God. But what about, say, for example, the image of evolution? What about that idea of origins and development? How does consciousness, moral consciousness fit into that? I think not well. Right? Not, not only in the sense of origin, like, where does this come from? In other words, if you have a bunch of physical evolution and development, it's just this kind of physical thing, well, where does morality fit into that at all? How does that come? How does it, where does it arise? And once it has arisen, how does it help? How does it help? Go read Nietzsche. <laughs> He's like, it doesn't help. You need to be selfish and dumb. You need to go get your stuff. There's a will to power. Forget this, like, this conscience 
trying to help and sort of, I mean, just, just, anyway, that's Nietzsche there for you, but he's, he sees it straight anyway, to say, well, on, on our understanding and modern realities of what we are as human beings, as evolved, moving along with no, no personality and, and, and certainly no intent or purpose behind it all, then conscience makes no sense whatever. How does that come into the play except to make us less powerful? Instead of might makes right, which really is the, the, the morality that comes out of evolution. If you can do it and you can stomp people down, you can take advantage, you do it. Right? Make the most babies you can. Populate the earth with your babies instead of someone else's babies. Right? Isn't that how it goes? It's got to be how it goes. And how does conscience fit into that? I don't know. I feel bad about this. I'm slowing down because I feel guilty about the way I treated somebody or something I did. It doesn't really fit into the evolutionary scheme at all. But if it's, it flows right out of creation in the image of God, because of who God is, how he's revealed himself to be, and that we are made in his image. Basic categories, however, I think are clear here, even if the application of these categories is difficult. And the basic categories of conscience are what? Good and evil. <laughs> right and wrong. Uh, faithfulness to God. Unfaithfulness to God. Good and evil. And we say this is pretty simple stuff, right? These categories are pretty simple. True enough. Now, the working out of those categories, what exactly is evil and how is it evil, what exactly is good and how is it good, sure, there's a lot to discuss there. But the reality is here, and it's inescapable categorically, the conscience operates in good and evil. Morality operates in good and evil. Where do those categories come from? What is really good and what is really evil is it's a social... You know, consideration, we all kind of think this is good and we all kind of think that's bad. And so, therefore, that's all we have. So, if we can get 51% of us to decide that, you know, thinking of Tiger Woods or something back when he was hot in the, in the PGA. So, yeah, you get all the, all the golfers in PGA together and say, decide, you know, we, uh, we don't want any black guys golfing. The majority of us decided we don't want black guys golfing. Okay, well, that's, that's good for the majority, but it's not fair within the golf. You know, so just because we agree on something that we should do it, or better, we decide we should kill all the black guys in the PGA. Well, we all decide it, right? We want to do it. The majority of the decision rules, that makes it right, right? So, no, no, no. There's something far behind that that says this is right or wrong, and it doesn't have to do with counting noses. It doesn't have to do with people's opinions. There's something deeper below all of that, tectonic, indeed. Good and evil. These are categories that are inescapable. Along with that is self-consciousness. These, again, I'm, I'm, I'm reversing some of the preconditions, necessary preconditions for conscience. All these things have to be in place. Our, our moral consciousness, the very basics of good and evil, the realities that we live in, uh, a self-consciousness. We're, we're, we're aware of ourselves. Right? We, we can reflect on being aware of ourselves. And we can reflect on our own actions and words and so on that we've done. We have to have memory. We have to know what's gone in the past to have a conscious now of, uh, of whether it was right or wrong. But these are many, many things put together that just simply have to be in place for a conscience even to function or to make sense at all. And all of this flows out of being created in the image of God. It indeed is Christianity. It is the Christian view of the world, understanding of humans and what we are, that gives rise to any of this and gives a context in which conscience makes sense. Other views of the world of, of origins and of what, what humans are, and I already mentioned evolution, but there are myriads of them. Uh, do they offer a, an account of how we can be moral, have self-consciousness, have memory? All these things are in place so we can have a conscious, you know, a conscience. 
and know whether we've behaved well or behaved badly. Not only are all these things self-consciousness, moral awareness, uh, and, and, and all of this rooted in the necessary categories of good and evil, all these things uh, are necessary preconditions for conscience to work, and they're all just taken for granted by everybody. Everybody just kind of assumes that these things are the case. But we have to ask the question, well, how are they the case? In what way do we have these things? How does that make sense with, given your assumptions of where we come from and how we've gotten here? But Christianity offers a basis to understand all of these things. In fact, it offers the basis, the account, for us to understand conscience at all. And the reality is non-Christians are simply stealing it. They're stealing these categories. An evolutionist who has no basis for these categories still operates in them. In fact, I have to say some of the uh, atheist, atheistic evolutionists that I know are the most morally demanding people I've ever met. Good, they won't give you, not bad, good, not bad, good. You can't be bad. You can't say that. You can't talk that way. You can't think that way. You have to think this way. Good, 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 bad, 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 bad. Based on what? Who says? We're, we're evolved pond scum. What is good and bad? Other than things you don't like. Or I don't like. If I don't like it, it's bad. If I like it, it's good. Well, who cares? Who cares what you like or don't like? Why should I care what you like or don't like? Why should you care what I like or don't like based upon our evolutionary background? It's all a joke. It's all a joke. It's all lies from Satan. The reality is we're made in the image of God, and therefore all these things make sense. We have a basis to understand the conscience. Our own adjudication of our own actions, and so on. In short, the truth of Scripture and the God who is revealed therein are the only foundation to make sense of or to sort out human conscience, the conscience we have. So let's look at some, as we've gone through this introduction and thought about what's important or what's what's required to even talk about the conscience, let's look at some of the things the Scripture says about conscience before we pull it together. God's redemptive plan the redemptive plan of God, in addition to its cosmic and corporate purposes, in other words, God has purposes in the redemption of Christ for the redemption of the cosmos, right? the whole order of things. And he has the redemption of the people of God as a body, right? each part bringing, coming together in a body. In addition to those things, the redemptive plan of God targets the individual conscience of the believer. And I, I notice how it was said that way. In addition to cosmic redemption and corporate redemption, there's also this individual reality of your conscience. Sometimes that's all we think about is ourselves, and that's it. But there's large realities of the redemption of Christ. But one of them is the conscience of the believer. So having a clean, having a good conscience is only in Christ before God. And we'll see that as we go. And that's both historically the case as far as the development of the covenants and so on, but it's also the case personally, individually, in each of our lives. So first, what kind of conscience to avoid? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, just to be in a couple verses of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Note right at the beginning the spirituality of all this. You think false teaching is just humans being confused or humans being wrong, but there's demonic realities behind all this. So deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars 
whose consciences are seared. Okay, so we have lying teachers that are, that are offering lying doctrines, not teaching the Bible, not teaching the things revealed in Scripture, but teaching something else, some other doctrine of demons. Okay, sounds good. People come together and they like it. But, of course, there are liars that are teaching it. And the liars that are teaching it, their consciences are seared. Now, what is searing? The word goes back to using a red-hot iron, like a brand. Now, if any of you have seen animals branded before, I have not, at least not in person. Uh, but I get the idea, because I've kind of done it to myself on accident a couple times, <laughs> grabbing something really hot, and, like, you know what goes on there. Not just the pain. We talk about searing pain, right? But, but what it does to the skin, what, what, it, what it does to what it touches and, and, and not only burning it, but making it like a scar tissue, it's not going to do anything, right? It's, it's not receptive. It's not normal skin. It's not normal that way. And that's what the branding does. But beyond the branding itself, we have this, this reality of the, the conscience not functioning as it's supposed to function, not telling us what we've done correctly, right, or wrong, but it's seared. It's not functioning. In fact, the seared conscience here, almost seems to me as a non-functioning conscience. Right? Certainly a misfunctioning conscience. We have that, but even from the Old Testament, we can see in Isaiah that there are some that call good, evil, and evil good, that white, black, and black, white. In other words, they're, they're, but they're liars. So they're, they're, we get that in the text here, too. So separating out the, the conscious liars and the, and the deceivers and the ones led by demons from a Christian who has a conscience that can be seared as well. By those lies, by the demonic teachings, uh, we can sear our consciences so that they don't function. They don't work as they're supposed to work. So demonic teaching and leading and lies lead to seared consciences. And of course, the searing of the conscience also has to do with what we do. Not just what we believe, but what we do. And more on that as we go. So in addition to a seared conscience, we can have a corrupt or a defiled conscience. And maybe that's a step on the way to being seared. Although as I'm thinking about searing, it seems like it happens fast. Right? When you sear meat, for instance, you, you put it in there at the high temperature and, and, and seal it off quickly. Right? So searing happens fast, where oftentimes we think of sin and the, the kind of corruption of the, of the conscience as something that takes place over time. It takes place with multiple, uh, multiple times of sinning and not repenting. Right? That we get, we get corrupted. So maybe the corruption's on the way to searing I'm not sure if it goes that way or not, but as far as corruption goes, flip over to Titus, just a couple pages over to Titus, chapter 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Ever seen that in the church? One of the Cretans, uh, testimony is true. The prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. Uh, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Just a side note there. It sounds a lot like what Paul's talking about in Romans 14 there. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So here we, again we have the, the, the false teachers that are in the church as, a, as an issue of their consciences here being 
uh, being corrupted or being defiled. Uh, and the word most basic meaning, like the searing of the last one with the brand, is stained. Okay, so think of uh, maybe a beautiful wedding dress. You think of something beautiful and flowing and white and glorious. And then big fat coffee stain right down the front. Is that going to work for you on the day of the wedding? That's all good. They wouldn't even notice. Yeah, they'll notice. It's stained. It's ruined, right? It's, it's been defiled. And that's, that's an image, then, of the wedding dress or something, of the moral defilement, the wickedness, and what it does to us. It stains us, and it ruins us, and it defiles us, and it corrupts us, and it corrupts our consciences and our minds. Behold the power of sin to break and corrupt and defile even the hearts of believers. And we certainly have here, I think, unbelieving false teachers. But we can have the same sort of thing go on even in the hearts of believers, which is why Paul says here, rebuke them sharply. Don't let them fall into this. Don't let them fall into this, this culture of laziness and, and foolishness and false teaching. Rebuke these believers so that they don't fall into that. So we have a seared conscience. We have a corrupt or a stained conscience. Corruption of the conscience does go different ways, though. We're not all the same. As our consciences are corrupted or if we're struggling with that, some Christians' consciences simply won't quit. Right? They're always on the, on the ropes for something. They're always feeling guilty uh, for something. They're continually under conviction. They're like the uh, dark, overcast day spiritually. Right? There's always something there that's kind of keeping them down. Uh, and it's not necessarily out there or other people. It's their own conscience with their own actions, with their own thoughts and, and words, and, and they can't seem to pull out of their own con- continual conviction. So while some can't seem to get their conscience to quit, others can't seem to get their conscience to wake up. Right? A sleepy conscience. There's not, nothing going on in there. There's no real conviction about the things you shouldn't be doing, or even adulation or, or praise about the things that you should be doing. Some people need to have their conscience wake up that they would be convicted. Now, all that's arranged within Christian, the Christian example or Christian possibility. So whether our consciences are kind of too much and they won't quit, or whether they won't kind of wake up and be functioning, we all need to apply ourselves, each of us, one of us, to the Word of God. To what God says, His law, His commandments, what is right and wrong. In doing so, we will, as we talk about, educate our consciences. So if they are too active and convicting us really of too much, they can be brought to the law of God and say, oh, your standards aren't right. Your standards aren't correct. Your, your conscience needs to be modified and molded by the very word of God, by the commandments of God, because that's what's right and wrong. Not what you think and feel. Right? You can be misled by your conscience, right? You can think and feel in your conscience and give judgment in your conscience that something was good when it was not good, when it did not please the Lord, when the Lord was offended because of the sin that you thought was good. That's certainly a possibility, right? And the other way as well. So conscience isn't really a guide as far as what really really is right and wrong, but it is a helper of God, a voice of God to lead us to the Scripture to know what really pleases Him and what really offends Him so that we can serve our God faithfully. We need to educate and bring in our conscience under the Word of God. And as I say, there's a whole range of Christian experience, but all of us need to appeal to the Scripture so that our conscience is educated and functions correctly. Here's a quote from R.C. on the hardening of conscience and how God does this. Now listen, as far as how when God gives people up to sin, we read that in early Romans, we can read that about Pharaoh, um, in the hardening of the heart, uh, it has to do with this sort of thing in the conscience. So listen, 
we are warned not to allow ourselves to become hardened, because if we look at the whole concept of hardening in its biblical, biblical perspective, we see that something happens to us uh, through repeated sins. Think about that, repeated sins. Our consciences become seared. The more we commit a particular sin, the less remorse we feel from it. Our hearts are recalcitrant through repeated disobedience. When God hardens the heart, all he does is step away and stop striving with us. For example, the first time I commit a particular sin, my conscience bothers me. In his grace, God is convicting me of that evil. God is intruding into my life, trying to persuade me to stop this wickedness. If he wants to harden me, all he has to do is stop rebuking me, stop nudging me, and just give me enough rope to hang myself. We see in the scripture when God hardens hearts, he does not force people to sin. Rather, he gives them their freedom to exercise the evil of their own desires. So Christian, when it comes to repeated sins, watch out. Watch out. Be careful. Flee from the corrupting of your own conscience. Flee from the searing of your own conscience. Serve the Lord. Know that that voice of God is God striving with you. That you should not be lost. Because your God loves you. He wants to conform you to the image of Jesus, His own Son. So flee the corruption of your own conscience. Pay attention to God striving with you. In fact, pay attention right now. Is God striving with you in your conscience? Is He showing you things that you need to pay attention to? You need to pay some more mind to in your own life? Indeed, things you need to repent of? Say, I'm not doing this anymore, God. I need to do this. I need to take off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of my mind, and put on the new man in Christ Jesus. I hope the Spirit of God is striving with you right now as you hear His Word and how you need to serve the Lord, how you need to repent by His grace. And rest in Christ Jesus and serve Him. Finally, I think the outline has point three or something like that. I couldn't figure out what I was preaching. It'll be the gospel-trained conscience. Okay, so we understand then uh, that only God gives us the context in which we can even understand conscience. The God of Scripture is, is, as He has revealed to us. He also shows us that the conscience can kind of go badly for us. And one thing interesting in reading about that is so often reading through Greeks and Romans and whatever else, the conscience is seen as an enemy. It's an enemy. In fact, it might be your greatest enemy, because you need to go do and and charge forward, and this consciousness is telling you, slow down, you're hurting people, you're doing it wrong. That's an enemy. It's a conviction. But from the Christian standpoint, it's not. It's God striving with us that we should not fall into sin, that we should not fall into perdition, but rather we should repent and serve Christ. We should look to serve the Lord Jesus. So each of us, as I said a minute ago, needs to learn from the Scripture. We need to educate and bring our minds around the Scripture so that our, our consciences can be true, can be faithful to the commands of God, to what is truly right and wrong, not just what we happen to think or feel is right or wrong. We've looked at the deficiencies of, of conscience in the persons, like individuals not knowing, uh, having their consciences seared or, or corrupted. But I want to take a step back and go a little different direction again real quick and, and kind of jump into this history of redemption. That is to say, how has God revealed all this redemptive plan through time, and how does the conscience fit into that? How does the conscience fit into that? And I, we'll take a little trip here, and I, I, I trust that we'll all come back together for us shortly. Look at Ro- uh, Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 9. And here, this is an extended 
discussion here through really chapters 8, 9, and 10 of a comparison. In fact, the book of Hebrews is very much this. A comparison of Jesus and all the other stuff. Okay, all the other things, whether it's angels and principalities or the temple worship and so on, which is where we're at here. So the, 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 the worship of the, of the temple or tabernacle, old covenant worship, and all the details fit into that. Christ is compared to that, right? That's what's going on here. And I wish I could just read the whole thing and make comments, but I think you guys would lose patience. So I'll just read certain portions of it and make comments and hope for the best. So starting at verse, verse 6, 6 through 10. These preparations, that's all the stuff in the, in the, in the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and, and that preparation. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only, that is the Holy of Holies, the second only, the high priest goes, and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. This is a day of atonement. We're talking about this annual day of atonement. But the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. So some typology going on here we can press into that we won't. According to the arrangement, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, baptisms, Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now you can see our, our word got used in there, conscience. You saw that one in there? So what does the Old Covenant worship not do? So there's, uh, he goes through all the details. Here's the showbread, and here's, uh, here's the Holy of Holies. He's going through all of this, you know, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and how you approach unto that with the blood and so on. But what does all of that, what is all of that not intended by God to do? To perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It leaves them knowing there's more. It leaves them in anticipation that this isn't it. Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away my sin. They show me that there's blood coming that will. Right? They're anticipating Messiah. But they themselves don't give the consciences of the worshippers peace. Yeah, that's old covenant worship. Prescribed by God for his people. Intended that they should be looking for more. They should be looking for the time of Reformation. So, Old Testament worship before Christ has a major anticipation to it. The actual coming of the one who would shed the blood, who would remove our sins, and so on. Now look at verse 11. We'll keep reading. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, this transition into the new covenant, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, uh, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by, his, by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify, make holy, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So, the author of Hebrews continues saying, hey, not only the Old Testament worship, but even all the ritual holiness, all the washings, right? all, all of the, and of course the Old Testament's full of that stuff, right? It's full of ritual washings, and full of all sorts of rituals that we're doing in cleanliness, trying to make sure we're, we're uh, the, the Israelites, trying to make sure they were ritually pure in order to come worship at all. Those have to do with externals. This is the kind of stuff we were talking about as we've gone through Romans 14 with meats, 
Right? You see food and drinks in the list here, right? What we eat can make us unclean, but Jesus says not like that, right? Uncleanliness comes from the inside. So these laws of cleanliness, whether they're food laws or various baptisms and washings and so on that are specified here, none of those could cleanse the conscience. But Jesus Christ comes not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood and says, now you can have a clean conscience. Now you can have a good conscience. Because the blood of bulls and goats pointed forward to me, but they can never do what Christ does with his own blood. Which means all the saints and believers, all the faithful before Jesus, look forward with an anticipation, and maybe God blessed them with clean consciences based upon the work of Christ, but the clean conscience we have, Christian, your clean conscience, mine, that of the entire church and redeemed humanity, is in Christ Jesus. That's where it comes from. Not from Old Testament worship, not from all the things God's prescribed, but when the coming of the New Covenant, the opening of the New Covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. The mediator's redemption here, uh, even of the Old Testament believers that we see through his eternal, or through his work on the cross. Okay, flip to one more passage. Next one, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way that he opened up through the curtain. You can see the, the, constantly can, the contrast between temple worship and worship in Christ going on here. Uh, the new and living way that he opened up through us, for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Verses 19 and 20 tell us that by the bodily death of Jesus, by his flesh on the cross, By the bodily death of Jesus, we are purified. By the bodily death of Jesus, we are redeemed, and through him we draw near unto God. And this is received by faith. That's what he says there in verse verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The work, Christian, of Jesus has been done. You can draw near through Jesus with full assurance of faith. Our hearts... Before God, knowing we're forgiving, right? With a cleansed conscience, which we'll look at in just a moment. What, what kind of cleansed conscience? Cleansed from what? What kind of conscience here is in the text that we're, that we're cleansed from? Or an evil conscience. An evil conscience. Christian. It said in just the last chapter, we're cleansed from the dead works, right? Uh, in our conscience. And here, our evil conscience. Do you know what an evil conscience feels like? Do you know what it is to rebel against the Lord? To haul off and do your own thing? To forget the Lord and do what you want to do? Then you know what an evil conscience is. If the Lord's given you that, if he strives with you, you say, I hate it. I hate my sin. I hate that I keep getting caught in the same sins. Week in and week out. Is that an evil conscience? Oh, I think it is. I think it is. Christian, there are a number of ways we fall in sin. And all of them generate, if God is gracious to us, an evil conscience. Knowing that we rebelled. Knowing that we sinned. Knowing, Christian, that we're guilty and deserving of wrath. That's the very first step. 
in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ is knowing that we've offended the Holy, Holy, Holy One of Israel. And that He is just. And He will not leave sins unpunished. And we say, well, then I should be punished. And as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ then, we find that our hearts are sprinkled with clean water. Cleansing us from an evil conscience. So we know we're guilty. But if we look to the finished work of Christ Jesus, we say, oh, but there's the one who bore my sin. There's the one who God counted as a sinner on the cross and punished him as a sinner on the cross for my sin. That's been fully paid for on the cross. And Jesus has rose again for my justification. And received back into heaven at the right hand of the Father. Work done in order to build His church. There is confidence that we have to draw near, knowing that our consciences have been washed. Now, there were various washings of the Old Testament, right? There were various baptisms, and that's the word that's used. Various baptisms, they don't do the trick. All those Old Covenant baptisms just pointed forward to the one baptism that would. That is your baptism into Christ Jesus. You're sprinkling with clean water. That's the image here. That's the baptismal image in the New Testament. Our hearts sprinkled with clean water. Now, it's easy to take that and say, oh, I've been baptized. Great, I'm gone. Nothing more to talk about. But that will land you in hell. You'll be judged based upon that baptism and the inclusion of the covenant. However, faith looks to this thing. We look to Christ. We look to Christ through the means Christ has given. Is it right for us to read the Bible and try to connect with Jesus there? Would you say that's good, to to open the Scriptures and and search the Scriptures to feed upon Jesus? Would that be wrong? Would it be wrong if I said the Scriptures save you? The Scriptures are the way in which God brings Christ to you? Would you accuse me of thinking the Scriptures are, uh, you know, just actually function in in the operation? Ex opere operato, because you read the Scriptures, you're saved? No. But it's the means God uses to connect you with Christ. Well, you know what? Baptism is a principal means by which Christ is connected to you and you to Him. God connects you with His Son through baptism. That's exactly what's being said right here. Your conscience before God. The new covenant blessing of forgiveness in Christ. Where do you find it? Where does your conscience settle? But in being baptized into Christ Jesus. Having faith in Him. Resting in Him. Rejoicing that Jesus indeed has paid it all. And He has redeemed you. We find just the same thing, and I'll just read it from 1 Peter, chapter 3. 1 Peter brings together the exact same themes in chapter 3. Some other themes as well, kind of a weird one. I'll not comment on the weird one, just on the other ones. Uh, verses 18 and following. 1 Peter, chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the basis of everything. The work of Jesus on the cross. The the righteous for the unrighteous. Sorry, I lost my place. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed in the Spirit to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, 
but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What's going on here, again, is this, all of this connection, are, are, what baptism is, is a connection to Jesus. Jesus who died for us, Jesus who rose from the dead, Jesus who ascended into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God above all powers and principalities and angels, ruling over his church, building his church. That living Christ we're connected to by baptism. And that's what Peter says here as well. Right? And he talks about the flood. He says, hey, Noah and his family were saved by water. Which is interesting because the water, of course, is the very means of death for everyone else, but is the means of salvation for, for Noah because of the ark. Okay? Because God's fortified them with the ark, the water actually is, there, uh, is saving them. It's keeping them from drowning. And then Peter says, and that's an antitype. The antitype here is baptism. So remember, antitype is the, like, the thing that the type points to. A type is a, a, a living image that points to something, whether a person or an office or something else, pointing forward to something that is the real thing. Well, Peter says this is the real thing, Christian baptism. Christian baptism is what saves you. Not the removal of flesh, you know, dirt from the flesh. Not just getting water on your body. That's not the salvation. What is it? It's an appeal of a good conscience to God. An appeal of a good conscience unto God. When you're, when you're talking to God, when you're wrestling with God, you know what you can do? You can do like Luther and say, God, I'm baptized. In your providence, I'm baptized. I'm united with Jesus Christ. Now minister Christ to me. Forgive me for Christ's sake. For he is mine, and I am his. I'm united with him in his death and resurrection through that baptism. Now, we prefer to think of baptism as simply not much. That's way easier if it's just like a bear sign. It just points to Jesus, and that's it. But that's not how the Bible talks about it. It's much more potent than that. It is our connection into the new covenant. It is our connection to Jesus Christ who opened the new covenant and says, now you can have cleansed consciences. Now you can have good conscience because of Jesus Christ and because of what he's done. Your evil conscience, remember the, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't cleanse you from that. All the washings of the old covenant couldn't wash from that. But Jesus has come. The Son of God has come. And he's opened his veins for us to bleed himself to death. He's broken his body for us that our sins should be punished in him. Christian, do you believe that? Do you believe that God has punished Jesus Christ, His Son, for your sins? And that you're raised on the newness of life in His resurrection? Well, that is what our baptism is. It's our connection to Jesus. And it's an appeal to God of a good conscience. Because Jesus Christ has paid it all. He's done it. It's not external prefiguring anymore. That's what we had in the Old Testament. It is the real deal. Baptism into Jesus, the Christ of God. And what's true of baptism is true of the table right here as well. We approach with faith. We approach our baptism with faith. And we approach the Lord's table with faith. That Christ really does minister himself to us in baptism. He really does cleanse us in baptism. He really does feed us with his flesh and blood at this table. Not after a carnal sense, where we're chewing on the flesh of Christ. But in a spiritual way, he feeds us the very life-giving flesh and blood of Jesus Christ as we come to the table. Do you believe it? Does it make sense? Can be kind of not. Right? None of this stuff really kind of makes sense. It's God's work of salvation. 
and he connects us with the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessings then of him of the new covenant. So, only the true and living God, as we kind of review and just pull it together here, only the true living God accounts for our conscience. This, this faculty that we all deal with all day long, and everyone does, it's only the true and living God as revealed in Scripture that gives an account of this and helps us understand how it even works and, and, and what, what things need to be in place for it to work. Self-consciousness, moral awareness, and categories of good and evil are all there and are necessary, among other things, for us to even understand conscience. In the Old Testament, sacrifices and ritual washings prefigured the cleansing of the conscience, the work of Jesus Christ, the one who was to come. And finally, in the New Covenant, we are united with Christ by faith, and that's ministered in washing, that our consciences are cleansed. But it's also, again, the case here as we come with cleansed consciences, baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death and resurrection, so we come to feed upon him, and all of that by God's design. So, Christian, may you enjoy, even this very morning, right now, the glory and the joy of a clean conscience. Not because you're so perfect, because you're not, but because you're baptized, you're brought into Jesus Christ, who is your Savior, who died for your sins, and who rose from the dead, and you're called to be faithful in Him. And God feeds us and gives us what we need, that we should be faithful, because He is the one who is faithful and cannot deny Himself. He is our Savior through Christ Jesus, and amen.